Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. And I'm Andrew. And this week, a bit belatedly admittedly, we are discussing Steven Spielberg's 1998 Saving Private Ryan to mark the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings. Yes. Yeah, um, the, the, um, this movie took place between the 6th and the, 13th. and the 16th. So it's not late. Yeah, technically. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and the, the 13th. Because the 13th exactly. is, without getting too specific about how exactly yeah. we so know that. So within, 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 within that space of time. I mean, you could also argue uh, it probably we, even took place in could, 1998 at some point we as well. Have, we, <laughs> we could have dropped the episode. Yeah. So it's not late, really. At no, all. It's, it's actually perfectly on time, I think. As I say, <laughs> yeah, you, you can get your refund at the first office. Yeah. I, it, think, I, I think, I think uh, Paul F. Tompkins said that one time on uh on uh like it was a, a part two it's like part two will actually be dropping on monday uh, sorry on 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 tuesday kind of next week rather than monday sorry about that <laughs> to cause all that frustration disappointment but yeah so this is uh basically d-day happened 75 years ago and in fact actually it's worth noting that saving private ryan itself Although it turned 20 years old last year, being 2018, Darren being good at maths, um, this summer it's having a bit of a re-release. In fact, it's actually screening in Irish cinemas over the course of the next couple of weeks. It's been in the IFI since Thursday. Uh, on the day that we're releasing this, it'll be in the Odeon uh, Point Depot. It'll be moving past that, I think, to the Lighthouse as well. Do you know, the funny thing about the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings is it feels a little bit that, like, Trump visiting becomes like the story indelibly yeah indelibly yeah. associated with it and everyone talking about um about that and like talking about kind of like oh how is this going to go down what is he going to say kind of how are people going to wel- welcome them should so and so be 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 is he going to draw politics into- yeah, yeah. i mean what well, the fact R- that rather than actually um, celebrating the day landings themselves yeah. which you would imagine would be the important so part that's of that's where we come in um, well I mean it, it is worth noting again like you're right and you're talking about coverage of things like the fact that he took the opportunity after giving the speech on D-Day to you know to nickname was it Nasty uh, Nasty Pelosi that sort of thing Nasty Nancy and stuff like that and making partisan jo- jobs while still on the beach so to speak of Normandy you know while he was still making these remarks which is remarkable. But we're not talking no, about No, no, we're, we're not going to do that. Uh, but it, I, like, it, I it, was kind of making the point that he had yeah, hijacked that, it. Yes, and, and so we no, were, allowing, we're not going to We're not going to allow him to do that. So, we're, yeah, we're going to steer clear of that. It is worth noting, by the way, though, that actually one of the things about D-Day, and particularly D-Day in the American context. Sorry, when, when I say that he hijacked it, I, I mean more that, like, people, of people talk a lot uh, uh, about uh, him in that about, context. Yeah. yeah. And that, yeah, the coverage of D-Day is often coverage of him. In the same way that coverage of any event featuring him inevitably becomes coverage of him. Black History Month becomes what outrage has been committed during Black History Month by Donald Trump. That sort of stuff, you know? Moving. I know, no, we're going to move swiftly along. It is worth noting, actually, funny when you bring that up, though, and this is not a Trump point, uh, to be absolutely clear, just in case you're getting nervous. It is worth noting that, like, D-Day in the American history and popular sort of consciousness is an interesting concept because... Originally, D-Day didn't actually occupy that strong a position in the American mythology of the Second World War. It's notable, for example, that in 1940, 1964, right, which is 20 years after the fact... I'd imagine Pearl Harbor would 
would be a bigger part of it as well. Um, But even like when they're doing interviews and sort of like, you know, 20th anniversary events, you had like Eisenhower, who was still alive at that point, having just been president. He was speaking to Walter Cronkite Cronkite on CBS, and we'll have that link in the show notes. And he was talking about it in a very subdued fashion. But these young boys, so many of them, over whose graves we have been treading, looking at, wondering and contemplating about their sacrifices. They were cut off in their prime. They They have families that grieve for them, but they never knew the great experiences of going through life like uh, my son I can enjoy. I devoutly hope that we will never again have to uh, see such scenes as these. I think and hope, pray, that the humanity will learn more than we have learned up to that time. But these people gave us a chance and they bought time for us so that we can do better than we have before. So every time I come back to um, these beaches, or when any day when I think about that day 20 years ago now, I say once more, we must find some way to work to, to peace and to really to gain an eternal peace. And what's interesting is that, and you can trace this back to 1984, actually, interestingly enough, the 40th anniversary of the D-Day landings, which was when Ronald Reagan uh, went to the beaches uh, for the 40th anniversary, but also for what was him a re-election year as well. Mm. And he gave this big, stirring sort of speech. It only lasted 13 minutes, which is relatively short by the standards of like big, stirring presidential oratory. But it made a huge sort of impression on people. And well, he was a, quite a good communicator. Oh, Reagan well, was, yeah. Reagan, he, yeah. Like, he was very good at communicating very ideals. Very funny guy as well. Yeah, and a very good sense of humor about himself as well. Right. right. And Reagan was, you pointed out, he's a great communicator, but he's very good at getting ideas across to people and particularly sort of evoking mythology or building American mythology and ideas right. and that sort of stuff as well. For four long years, much of Europe had been under a terrible shadow. Free nations had fallen... Jews cried out in the camps, millions cried out for liberation. Europe was enslaved and the world prayed for its rescue. Here in Normandy, the rescue began. Here the Allies stood and fought against tyranny in a giant undertaking unparalleled in human history. We stand on a lonely windswept point on the northern shore of France. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment, The air was dense with smoke and the cries of men, and the air was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. At dawn on the morning of the 6th of June, 1944, 225 rangers jumped off the British landing craft and ran to the bottom of these cliffs. Their mission was one of the most difficult and daring of the invasion, to climb these sheer and desolate cliffs and take out the enemy guns. The Allies had been told that some of the mightiest of these guns were here, and they would be trained on the beaches to stop the Allied advance. The Rangers looked up and saw the enemy soldiers, the edge of the cliffs, shooting down at them with machine guns and throwing grenades, and the American Rangers began to climb. They shot rope ladders over the face of these cliffs and began to pull themselves up. When one Ranger fell, 
Another would take his place. When one rope was cut, a ranger would grab another and begin his climb again. They climbed, shot back, and held their footing. Soon, one by one, the rangers pulled themselves over the top, and in seizing the firm land at the top of these cliffs, they began to seize back the continent of Europe. 225 came here. After two days of fighting, only 90 could still bear arms. And behind me is a memorial that symbolizes the ranger daggers that were thrust into the top of these cliffs. And before me are the men who put them there. These are the boys of Puente Hope. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. These are the heroes who helped end a war. And what's interesting is that, like, Reagan sort of contextualized it in this idea of his own romantic ideal of, like, America of the past, thinking morning in America and stuff like that, this appeal to a 50s nostalgia or to, like, a, a mid-century ideal. And it's kind of interesting that, to a certain extent, D-Day is kind of built from that, the point where, like, it was a huge big deal in the 90s uh, as well, where you had the... 50th anniversary of obviously World War II and stuff like that but again you had all this 90s stuff and Darren's very fond of this I apologize in advance but it's like the end of the Cold War and stuff <laughs> like that but like you had this idea of America like having essentially won the big conflict that spun out of the Second World War because after the Second World War you had Yalta you had the Cold War and you had the two wars sort of bleeding into one another to a certain extent where after the fall of the Berlin Wall in the 90s you had the almost the closing of the book on like the first half of the American century, you know, the point at which America had become the dominant cultural well, force. That was the point where you had to make uh, Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> in order to navigate that, like, as a brief yeah, refresher history. Yeah, yeah, to provide a sense of closure to it. Uh, but you had, like, again, you had this... This, this movie starts with an American flag. It doesn't... It starts and it ends with an American flag as well. And it, it's kind of interesting because the obvious point of comparison in Spielberg's filmography is Schindler's List. Because right. that was another movie that was made. It was made five years earlier, and again, while the first, while the Second World War has featured heavily in Spielberg's like films, obviously like Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example, Last Crusade, nineteen forty one, to pick an example. And while Empires of the Empire of the Sun in the eighties is actually much like underappreciated as a Spielberg film, like it's Schindler's List and it's this one and it's Empire of the Sun that provide a sense of like trying to get a, a bit of history. Right. Of the Second World War and trying to contextualize it and trying to inform the memory of it. Because like when Saving Private Ryan was released, you would have had a lot of veterans of the Second World War passing away. You had a lot of people who had actually lived through those experiences kind of dying. Yeah. And you would have had a question of how exactly you preserve that memory and how you sort of like keep it for the next generation. And obviously that's that's what happened with um, the Holocaust with Spielberg's project, which in there's this, but he also did the Voices project, I think, at the um, the Holocaust Museum, which is about recording survivor testimony and stuff like that. Right. But, like, you had a similar sort of thing Can, happening. How come the Spiel, Spielberg... I mean, you're probably going to correct me, but it feels like he didn't have um, much to say about uh, Vietnam. Like, even Lucas with Star Wars... Yeah. ...kind of was, in, in some ways, making a Vietnam movie. Well, the thing with, again, the thing with Spielberg and Vietnam is that you, there are two approaches you can take generally to that. You can say, you can read it allegorically into some of his work. And again, that's a stretch we talked a bit about when we did Jaws 
about how you could read Jaws yeah. if you re- Yeah, I know. If you really wanted to, it's a bit of a stretch. It's a vagina. Um, it's a big blue vagina. Or would you say it's yeah. Vietnam? <laughs> it's a clearly it's a, it's clearly a big blue vagina. But you could also like, and obviously the post, for example, recently as well is to a certain extent a Spielberg Vietnam movie, except it's much more about the aftermath of Vietnam, the Pentagon Papers, and stuff like that. But yeah, Spielberg has this engagement with old-fashioned Americana. I mean, and he's talked about, and a large part of the coverage of Saving Private Ryan was Spielberg talking about why he was drawn to the Second World War in particular. And there's a quote from his an interview with the American Society of Cinematographers where Spielberg says, I think that World War II is the most significant event of the last 100 years. The fate of the baby boomers and even Generation X was linked to the outcome. Beyond that, I've always just been interested in World War II. My earliest films, which I made when I was about 14 years old, were combat pictures that were set both on the ground and in the air, for, the years now, for years now, I've been looking for the right World War II story to shoot. And when Robert Rodat wrote Saving Private Ryan, I found it. He's also talked to Ebert, for example, about like why he's drawn to World War II, because he sees it as the foundation of modern America. And he's not just talking culturally. Spielberg's argument is, and it's a fair argument to make, which is that like if America hadn't persevered in the Second World War, if it hadn't won the war, so to speak... There would be no baby boomers. There would be no Generation X. There would be no America as it exists today as a concept. And so that... There'd be no Spielberg. Yeah, there'd be... Yeah, that's it exactly. Yeah. And it it has that sort of sense of importance to him. In a very kind of serious way. Yeah, not not in like an abstract, like conceptual way. There would be Steven Spielberg as a person... people with that that surname. surname existing in the world. Yeah. Um, Like... And, and to him, that has a foundational quality to it. And it's worth noting as well, afterwards, he went on to do Band of Brothers, The Pacific, for example. He produced uh, Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Mojima with Clint Eastwood. He was originally, I think, supposed to direct Flags of Our Fathers, but dropped out rather early and Clint Eastwood was brought in um, along the way. So, like, that's, that's why he said, um, or will say in the future. Yeah, let's go with will say in the future. <laughs> About another... Uh, no, it's my opinion now, and this is the first time I'm saying this, that Spielberg doesn't do as much uh, movie kind of directing. Okay. As, yeah. Yeah, the, like like that you were saying about that he was supposed to to do flags. Oh yeah, water and, and he and, yeah, and sort of he handed that project on and stuff like that. And he's very much like a Godfather figure, like Steven Spielberg presents, which is ironic yeah. because like in the past you would have had the opposite situation where you have things like uh, Poltergeist, which right. was you know practically a Spielberg film based if you believe the accounts of it, in that he apparently stepped up on set and actually filmed most of the movie, even though he didn't get a credit on it, um, that sort of thing. And it is it is interesting in that respect, but. It's interesting because Saving Private Ryan arrived at a point where America was having a conversation about the Second World War. And so, like, you saw a lot of movies around the same time. Notably, Saving Private Ryan competed for the Best Picture Oscar against uh, Thin Red Line. Red Line, yeah. Yeah, which is Terrence Malick's film about the Eastern Front. Very different. A very different movie. Um, and again, you get a sense of, like, the breadth of experience as it exists, like, in that conflict and stuff like that. But even, like, if you want to look at TV shows like The X-Files, for example, they were navigating the legacy of the Second World War with things like uh, Operation Paperclip. And the idea that, like, the mythology of The X-Files is built around, well, what if we didn't win the Second World War? What if we were compromised by things like, op- you know, real-life Operation Paperclip where they, found- where they stole Nazi scientists over. And those Nazi scientists were involved in stuff like the, the moon landing. Yeah, clearly, yes. Uh, if you paid attention to Captain America Civil War or, or the Winter Soldier. But that did happen. No, it did happen yeah. in real life, like to be absolutely clear. 
But like, so you had like uh, Von Braun, like his rocket, which was used to help put people on the moon. You had people like um, people Stroghold. Who, they discovered um, a cure to a, a disease or found a, a longer lasting light bulb. <laughs> to get in keeping with this. But you had this idea that like bring people like Hubertus Stroghold over from the... Sorry, Stroghold. 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 Yes. He, he had conducted experiments on Jewish people, um, like horrific, as you might imagine, during oh, the Second World War. He conducted human experimentation, but he was one of the pioneers of the field that was known as space medicine. Right. And stuff like that. And that was of huge interest to NASA in putting people on the moon. And you had like things like uh, in the in 1994, you had this huge argument about the Smithsonian, right? The Smithsonian doing an exhibit on the Enola Gay. And the question of whether or not you dropping the atomic bomb on Japan was necessary or justifiable or what the consequences of that were. I believe it wasn't. That they wanted an unconditional surrender. Yeah. And that, that the Japanese wanted to uh, retain their the emperor, emperor wasn't it? I believe as well. Yeah. A few things like that. Yeah. They ended up conceding those things anyway. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like, but the thing was in the 90s, because you no longer had the Cold War, you had this discussion taking place in this broader cultural context. And we talked about this with stuff like Forrest Gump, but it feels like it's part of stuff like Saving Private Ryan as well, where you have Saving Private Ryan effectively providing like a mythology of the Second World War and the legacy of D-Day and the Allied soldiers in the Second World War. Because the Second World War obviously is a hugely important conflict because the world, as we mentioned, wouldn't exist as it is today without it. Yeah, 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 clearly. Uh, But I mean, it's also notable because it's a conflict that exists with clear good and evil delineated. And I mean, you can be glib about this all you want. I mean, there's the great Mitchell and Webb sketch that opened that Mitchell and Webb look where you have the two Nazi soldiers who are like... I looked at our caps recently. Our caps? The badges on our caps. Have you looked at them? What? No. A bit? They've got skulls on them. Have you noticed that our caps have actually got little pictures of skulls on them? I don't, so... Hands. Are we the baddies? Uh, But I mean, even, even in a less kind of cynical way, even in a less jocular way, the Second World War was a battle in theory... Good by liberal evil. democracy yeah good versus evil liberal democracy sure. versus fascism like it's a very freedom good, versus genocide it's a very good kind of you know sort of a 90s um story to tell because you have that sort of almost kind of schmaltzy sort of 90s kind of american hollywood music playing as you're you have that kind of opening um, scene with yeah. uh, with the American flag and him walking through the graveyard. Yeah. It's kind of Copeland inspired sort yeah. of stuff that you did. Like it sounds a little bit like the Shawshank Redemption kind of music. Yes, it does you know? exactly. Yeah, and again, and, and b- bits of like the the uh, may, well, no, no, maybe not um, uh, Forrest Gump, but but I suppose not a million miles away either. Well, it is it is worth noting again. This is one of the things where you have this contradiction within sort of like Saving Private Ryan and how we talk about Saving Private Ryan because like it's not a spoiler to say in too much depth when a lot of people talk about the opening of Saving Private Ryan they're actually talking about the second sequence in the movie there's a tendency to ignore the framing device around the film as well the the opening with the American flag because when you talk about the opening of Saving Private Ryan everybody assumes yeah yeah, that really visceral sequence at the you know that is at the start of the film but like there's a tendency to kind of 
look well, past the. It, I mean, because of the impact. Yeah, of, of that. that um, uh, scene on the beach. I mean, it's you, it's very easy to kind of forget the that there's something before that. Starting a movie like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if that was the first thing... You Literally just thrown into it, almost. Yeah. Um, and it, it's kind of staggering. But, yeah, I mean, do you remember the first time you saw Saving Private Ryan? Oh, yeah, I would, have, I would have saw this. Uh, I, I would have seen this um, about, about the time it uh, came out, I would say. I'd say 1998, you would have been about 11, 12-ish. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would have been the perfect age, actually. I think so. Like, like the... the um, um, yeah, it, it was... Um, like it was huge, didn't it? it yeah. Like it, 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 it did very well at the at, it was at the Oscars. It had like one of those kind of sweeps. It was the highest grossing movie of the year in America. Yeah. In nineteen ninety eight, it was not the it's highest. A very gross- American movie. It is indeed. Like it, and anyone who kind of wants to kind of um, poke at it and say, "Oh, this is kind of you know one of these kind of Americans won the war." Um, I believe Omaha Beach was just American forces yeah. anyway. So and and obviously the hundred and first airborne was just an American American, American division yeah, as yeah. well. So they, 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 it makes it makes sense in the in in the context of this. Similarly, like Pearl Harbor makes sense yeah, in terms of an, American, American being American. Dunkirk makes sense in terms of them all being Brits. Yeah, that sort of thing as well. Um, but yeah, you're you're right, sort of in in terms of of that, and in terms of its cultural impact as well. I mean, even things like Fubar. I know what Fubar means because it's from this movie in particular. Yeah. I didn't see it in cinemas. You know what a snafu means? I do not know. I know, like I just know what a snafu is, but I don't. Um. So f- Fubar is uh, up beyond yeah. all recognition. Yeah. Uh, snafu is, I believe, situation normal. Oh, okay. Nice. I did not realize that. Um, it is worth noting, actually, in terms of the film. You mentioned the sweep at the Oscars. Our listeners won't learn anything. <laughs> because that's all been bleeped. <laughs> you just imagine, like, like what uh, words? Use the, the same word that was bleeped out of Fubar. Fubar. <laughs> There's a little bit of listener work involved. You're going to have yeah, to do your yeah. own homework on this. It is worth noting, and actually. How long? The bleep <laughs> was. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, but you can work out, like, this is the thing. It's like a bit of bird song. What are our listeners thing? Listeners uh, tweet the two fifty and about what what like, censorship sounds should, you yeah, would like yeah, to hear. Yeah. Uh, but in terms We're of just assuming you love censorship first. <laughs> um, but in terms of like the Oscars, because you mentioned that it was nineteen ninety, because you mentioned that like it did a you had a huge success at the Oscars in yeah. nineteen ninety nine. It actually had less success than you might think, based on sort of its uh, pedigree, its success, and its legacy. Do you know what actually won the Best Picture Oscar that year? It wasn't Thin Red Line. No, Thin Red Line was also nominated, but it didn't win. And it wasn't Fargo. No, Fargo was a couple <laughs> of years earlier, yeah. Um, um, what, what, other, what else was nominated was Elizabeth, which was the biopic um, with Kate Blanchett as sort of Elizabeth the Queen. Which great, I love that movie. Life is Beautiful. Oh, yeah. Um, but what won was Shakespeare in Love. <laughs> yeah um this well, is I, like i like shakespeare, shakespeare in love. I, I think uh like it has um some good kind of stopper lines in that yeah he punched like, up the script didn't he yeah yeah well yeah i think he like think, I, I think he actually might have uh may have even written it from the beginning but there, there's like the um jeffrey rush um 
bit where is it is it Colin Firth is in that movie or who is it oh no 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 it's, it's Ray uh, Fiennes Ray, it's, um, it's Joseph Fiennes apologies Joseph not Fiennes Ron yeah Fiennes. Joseph Fiennes says so the, the show must and then <laughs> Jeffrey Rush says go, go on, on. <laughs> which is yeah that's a very Tom Stafford right sort of anyway of words, so like, yeah I don't I don't hate Shakespeare in Love uh, no, I, I don't hate it either. And I think that it, it suffered a bit of an unfortunate backlash because it won against So was this. it just that this was nominated for loads of things? This was nominated for loads of things. Then to be fair, Shakespeare in Love was nominated for more. This one, Best Director for Steven Spielberg, for example. I remember all of this. Yeah. It was nominated for Best Actor for Tom Hanks, but that went to Roberto Benigni for Life is Beautiful. This is a terrible mistake because I used up all my English. Uh, which is a great acceptance speech. Um... <laughs> It was, was it nominated for Best Screenplay written directly for the screen, but lost to Tom Stoppard's Shakespeare in Love, for example. Uh, but yeah, it, it kind of, it was, and I think Shakespeare in Love gets a bit of a blowback um, in terms of because, like, it beat this film. In the same way that we like, talk about... It was like a, a kind of a Curtis kind of... Uh-huh. Um, uh, it, it was like a, a Richard Curtis this kind of movie before kind of, Richard Curtis um, Rosencrantz and Gildan's Turner Dead <laughs> that's probably that's a really good characterization of it and again this is a thing where it's like 1994 again where Forrest Gump I think gets a lot of flack because it beat out Pulp Fiction and it beat out the Shawshank Redemption for Best Picture as well so you have this like retroactive kind of Oscar sort of voting going on as well Forrest Gump beat out Pulp Fiction like it was hitting on Jenny <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, you mean take it out right (laughs) the listeners can't see the gesture I'm making to the side of my head Um, but yeah like so and again huge cultural impact that it's had as well like when I mentioned to you that you were when I mentioned that we were doing this to you your response was to quote a line from the climax of the movie that we both knew immediately what it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, are we, are we going to... <laughs> to earn this. Yeah, are, we, are you going to make me record this? <laughs> yeah, um, earn this, Darren. Yeah. But, um, and again, like the level of cultural impact that it's had and the influence that it's had. I mean, as well, like Dunkirk, I, I suspect would not exist without the influence of the opening 20 minutes of Saving by Ryan as well, you know? It is worth noting as well that, like, when we mentioned Shakespeare in Love... I saw Dunkirk again, actually. And I, like, I, I feel like I, I probably wasn't that strong in my praise of it when I... When I was on the podcast. It. And, yeah, and, and initially. But, um, no, I, I was mad about that. Just thinking about the way it must have felt for those um, boys kind of on uh, that, that jetty. Yeah. Like just waiting when the plane, when you start to hear it, yeah, yeah, flying overhead, incredible. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's absolutely staggering, and the film itself is is an amazing accomplishment. Before we ask the three questions, before we sort of jump into the spoiler zone, it's worth noting, like, how would you rank this as a Spielberg film? Like, as in Spielberg. as a Spielberg. Well, I don't think anything beats Jaws. I'm yeah. not a big uh, a Spielberg, Spielberg guy, um, really. Like, like, um, I like. Um, Jurassic Park but it wouldn't be I don't think I would uh, rank it like as as high as a lot of people would it wouldn't be on your own 250 I know that we're going to have to do this when we do Jurassic Park anyway (laughs) (laughs) um I mean possibly not but then again like it's it's like Jurassic Park is a lot of fun which Jaws is pretty much perfect yeah, Jaws is the perfect summer blockbuster. It's like you got it right the first time, yeah. which is very strange. It's like you got it so perfect the first time that we've just been trying to recapture it since. It's kind of amazing in that respect. Yeah. 
And and it's kind it's of like and and uh, was it analyze fish was a podcast oh the podcast about, covering fish uh, yes the band fish the band but then they had a sub podcast called analyze fish spelled with f i s h it's about movies which, about fish which, no which was kind of Howard Kramer like is, is saying kind of Jaws is the best movie of all time prove me wrong kind of uh, thing. Where it's like, come make a case for why, like, some other movie is the best of all time. And did anybody ever manage it? I don't think so. No. <laughs> they, they wouldn't hunt it for 12, kill it for... Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, in terms of, like, so how would you rank Saving Private Ryan it as a no Spielberg spin. film? <laughs> uh, as a Spielberg film. Like, I mean, how would it, like, I know you're not a big fan, I know you don't particularly rate him. But do you think no, this is no, among I mean, his best? I, like, it's not that I don't particularly write them. I think he makes like, great movies. It's just that they, they, they don't kind of... They, they, I think they... they like they're, they're just a bit kind of... They're very kind of aimed at the middle ground. You know, yeah. or the, the very kind of um, mainstream kind of... Um, I mean, like this Mid- is the, this is the observation. Yeah, this is the observation where Spielberg, love him or hate him, is American cinema. Right. Like, I mean, like it's not that he's not a part of but American he's, cinema. You know, he's like, a- like kind of kinda, the generation of kind of directors that is, uh, you know, like, the big five, like, like De Palma, yeah, Scorsese, done, like, Spielberg, very gritty yeah. kind of um, Lucas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, um, maybe not Lucas so much, but. Um, but no, the the um those kind of um what do you call them? Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. Raging Bulls, yes. Yeah. Uh, the the Biscayne book, for example, yes. Yeah, where they're they're more sort of doing something a little more out there yeah. or like difficult. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think that I think that sort of like I think that dismisses a lot of what Spielberg does. I oh no, I think he's tremendous, yeah. but like it, it's it 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 always feels very kind of. I'm going to be careful how I say this, but uh, kind of, you know, radio friendly, yeah. you know? I, I can see that. Like, I think Spielberg is a mass entertainer. Now, I think that, yeah. like, cinema is a mass entertainment medium. There's nothing wrong with that, yeah. Yeah, I think that cinema is a mass I'm entertainment medium. I'm probably being a bit pretentious. Um, but no, I, like, I mean, and I think that Spielberg is a director who... And again, this is one of the things where it's... How do you contextualize where Spielberg is now, where he's doing stuff like Ready Player One, for example, which feels... Well, I, I'd, put this closer to Jaws. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> On the scale of these things yeah, go. The, but um have you seen yeah, Ready Player I, One? I I mean, where would I uh rate this? I would like I'm, I might be I might say like make four um Spielberg movies maybe and and bring them to the um the 250 Desert 250 Island. Desert Island. And yeah. would this be one of them? So this yeah, would be one of the yeah, four. Yeah, Jaws, Jaws this saving one. Saving Private Ryan um and the 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 other two are would be Jurassic Park and um Schindler's List, yeah. Okay, that's pretty good. I think, yeah. Okay. Um but yeah Are I'm, those the only ones? There's more than that, aren't there? There's more than that on the list at the moment. There's like Catch Me If You Can, for example, Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's like The Last Crusade. I wouldn't bring, I wouldn't bring any Indiana Jones, uh, Jones at all. No, okay, no. interesting. All right. But yeah, there, there's there's those movies. movies. <laughs> <laughs> you say that like you're looking down your nose at them. But I mean, this is the thing where, like... <laughs> like, I don't expect there to be any kids on, <laughs> on the island with you. Um, otherwise, there may be some raised eyebrows. Yeah. Um, but I, like... <laughs> Jesus, Darren. <laughs> what? <laughs> like a... 
accusing me of being uh, engineering some kind of like paedophilia plot to have like, like kids on a desert island. This is a long you way. Take to, me for this is a long way to go from would defamation, you, Darren. This is a long you've said way, it on a podcast. This is a long way to go from would you take Raiders of the Lost Ark to a desert island with you? This is sort of like a big jumping off point from it. Um, but yeah, like this is the thing with Spielberg, where I think of Spielberg as like the quintessential American director. And it feels appropriate that as you pointed out, he's, he hasn't done much with Vietnam and has instead focused largely on world war two. Like, I mean, I don't think this is a weakness. I don't think that it's like something that he needs or deserves to be criticized for. I can't imagine a Vietnam movie from from Spielberg would be. Jaws. No, no. Yeah. Because like, I feel like, yeah, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't just fit. Yeah, because he has that very Americana sensibility to him. Now, again, I think that Spielberg's more complicated than that. I think, in particular, when you get to like the twenty first century, when you've got films like Minority Report, when you've got films like AI, when you've got films like Munich, to pick an example. You've got even like Wars of the Worlds or War of the Worlds. You have Spielberg working through this Americana in a different context. But I like. I I think um, it's it a lot of movies are. Um, a lot of Spielberg movies aren't um, per se about uh, kind of Spielberg as an American. I think a lot of them are about Spielberg as a Jew, and I I, I think this is um, kind of falls in, in into that in, category. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like outside there of Schindler, are, I'm kind of curious about this. Like outside of Schindler's List, part, so. parts of so, I, 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 well, this is the one I, I would have thought of immediately, but I'm trying to think of other contexts in terms of Spielberg's Jewishness. I think like Close Encounters, are we thinking like... Um... Uh, Munich. Oh yes, um, Munich, yeah. you're right, Munich. And, and, um, and this, I think yeah. as well. Maybe more no, this subtly is very much, than those other Well, two. this is very much, yeah, I mean, this is not exact. I mean, even when you say more subtly, like the word Juden is yelled repeatedly in yeah. this film, like to give an example. Oh yeah, no, context. it's not subtle in the moments when they're, when they're putting it across, yeah. but it, it, it isn't the whole kind of... Context of the movie, movie in the same like way. It's like a character. Yeah. But I think that's the kind of... Con- the, 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 that's probably the, the kind of context behind it. Because the, the whole idea of it is that they're 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 going to Europe to um, liberate to, and save someone. Yeah, like, from from tyranny. Yeah, and um, very literally in the person of of Ryan. Like without getting too spoilery, the title is Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, it's a rescue mission, is how it's being presented and contextualized. No, but it, but they're I mean they're on a mission to to uh, to save Private Ryan, um, but. And it's strange in a way that that's the mission in the movie and that they have lines like, well, if we, if we can save Private Ryan. <laughs> that might be the one good thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is strange because like, well, surely the one good thing you're doing is kind of saving Europe, Europe from <laughs> the Nazis. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, like, again, this is the thing where it's sort of allegorical. Saving to a the ex- Jews from extermination. Yes, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. And again, I, I think that is like that is sort of almost allegorical about it. And I think that you're right, because Spielberg is a director who's and again, like you mentioned it as like children's films. And if, to a certain extent, that's like what people think when they think of Spielberg films. They tend to think of the movies that they watch with their kids, like Rays of the Lost Ark, but even things like E.T. the Extraterrestrial, for example. Right. But even movies like Jaws are films that I would have watched with my dad, for example, you know, on Lazy Afternoons, that sort of stuff. And yeah, he makes a lot of kind of gory action kind of horror movies. 
for um, uh, kids. Like maybe like eleven or twelve year old can yeah. watch Temple Jurassic of Doom. Park. Yeah. Or well, no, you'd okay. be a bit too old. <laughs> well, Andrew is just for, pulling no for, punches here for, for watching Indiana Jones and yeah I don't know maybe not uh, but yeah you'd want to watch like Jaws or uh, Jurassic Park or something like that but I mean like again Spielberg kind of has this capacity and again if you're if you're being and I, I think let's be fair to Spielberg I would argue Spielberg is very good for making movies for the kid inside everybody to a certain extent and a large part of that is down to the fact that you know sometimes literally in the case of Hook which is a story about an adult literally connecting with the kid inside himself. But even like his recurring motif of the absent father and this sort of idea that Spielberg keeps coming back to of like reconnecting with the nuclear family and stuff like that. But I mean, even... So would this be in year 250? But, but just to, to bring it back to the, what you were talking about there, is the idea that this is almost like a fairy tale version of World War II in that it is, like you mentioned, it's going to Europe to save people. You know, it's in this case, it's one particular person. It's, but you know, it's an allegory and it works metaphorically in terms of the way that Americans think about the Second World War. Because they think about the Second World War, you know, outside of the Pacific theater, which is something much more complicated. And you get things, you know, you have to deal with stuff like the Thin Red Line. It's telling the Thin Red Line is a much more complicated movie than this is. It's a much more messy movie than this is. It's a much less linear. It's a much less structured movie than this is. It's a much more, I think, complicated and kind of, I wouldn't say complicated, but like, um more mature perhaps in some respects yeah. i would argue than this movie is but when the americans think of the western front and again you know it's simplistic but i think that there's a certain amount of truth in it there's a tendency to think of it as and we mentioned earlier the good war but the war that is defined by the fact that they were sending their soldiers overseas for on a mission that was from their perspective at the time largely selfless now i mean historically they were at war with the axis powers after pearl harbor and obviously roosevelt had wanted to be actively involved in the war from much earlier and there are various reasons for that as well that are you know self-motivated and not altruistic but the myth of the second world war is they sent the americans sent an entire generation of young men to europe to deal with a threat on foreign soil to protect europeans and to liberate the concentration camps and rescue the jews and Saving Private Ryan, to a certain extent, to me feels, as you point out, like an allegory for that to a certain extent, where it's like, you are risking eight lives for one. You're risking your men to protect mm. other people. You're putting their lives on the line for something that doesn't directly affect them. And, you know, you can't justify that in a selfish cost versus means way. You do it because, as you point out, the one good thing that we did in this war. You know, you want to point it out as something that has moral virtue outside that. And I wonder if, like, first of all, I suspect that's why Spielberg gravitates to the Second World War rather than Vietnam, because you can't construct that narrative for Vietnam. There's no, no way to build that story yeah. around if American they, involvement in Vietnam. Well, um, if, uh, if we didn't come here and make everything worse... <laughs> what sort of Americans would we be? Yeah. How could we live with ourselves? Yeah. I mean, we, we look back and we think that this was the one good thing that we did. And I think that like Spielberg is a great director in terms of sort of distilling that Americana down. Now, it's worth noting, and if you want to be cynical about this, and you can be cynical about this, a lot of people have pointed out that, you know, it's this mythologizing of the Second World War that arguably led to things like the War on Terror. 
where the war on terror was built on this, like, and particularly in the 90s, this sort of swelling yeah, of but the, the, this idea of the good uh, war, the, the necessary. It's not kind of, it's very, very, very difficult to, I don't think it was ever really possible. And I don't think that, he, it, like, I don't think at any point did anyone buy into the war on terror as um, a, a noble Kind really? of a cause. There, there was always um, anti um, Iraq war sentiment. Um, sentiment. Yeah. But I mean, you look at you look at things constantly. But you look at things because people knew how the uh, uh, um, Americans had been involved in in supporting um, Saddam, Saddam Hussein when it's Iran. Yeah, when it's the interest. people knew how Americans had supported and trained the Mujahideen against the Russians. So like it, it it yeah and it it and and then I think as things went on, uh, it was very clear that um, that there were no uh, weapons of mass destruction in in Iraq. In, yeah. in Iraq, it became clear as well that the Saudis were um, well, kind of been left out of um, the axis of evil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, like. I think so. I no. I, I. I. Like. I mean. There's. There's been a lot. I don't of, think anyone was going to buy that sort of narrative. Um, I mean, narrative. No. I think that historically speaking, particularly in the past couple I think of years, people been were lot, upset about nine eleven. Yeah. Obviously. But I mean, there's but, been a lot of criticism of. But the, I don't. I, the I media's don't, handling of things like the, the the march to the war on terror and things like that, the invasion of Iraq, the presentation of it and stuff like that. I mean, you have people like Dan Rather who were quite. Yeah, but Dan Rather, who was quite vocal um, in his opposition to it, for example, talking about how he felt railroaded by the media and the network in terms of like being patriotic and supporting the troops and stuff like that and supporting the narrative of the good war that was sort of being constructed. I mean, I think yeah, that Europeans it, it were more skeptical. Oh, okay. like the what World War Two? No, I I know it never going, had that, but I mean, I, but uh, nor 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 was it going to be kind of like a convincing sort of. Um, template but I think that a lot of people did buy into it and particularly in America and stuff like that like you saw people not the pre- way they did about war not, not, no, not, not yeah. to the extent no I'm not pretending to the extent like, but I'm I'm saying that like people, more like Vietnam well, eventually it was yes eventually it turned around when you had like the bodies being brought back and the footage of the the families welcoming the, the kind of the coffins and stuff like that off the planes but I mean, yeah, but the coffins didn't come back from Vietnam until they sent uh, living people there. Yeah. Oh no, I know. I like I, either. Okay. So maybe it started out kind of like um, uh, positive. Yeah. But. Yeah. No, that that's what I'm saying. Like the argument, I'm not arguing that like people are like now. Well, people the war didn't terror turn was against World War Two when coffins started. Yes. Returning. Okay, but my argument is more that like. The presentation of the or the media of the good war, the myth of the good war, particularly as it relates to World War Two, and particularly in the context of the nineties, where like you had this, uh, and we talked about this in the podcast before, but this idea of like existential ennui, this sort of like sense of listlessness, and lack we of purpose. Talk about this. Before? We, we haven't. Um, <laughs> like every single. Week. Maybe every single movie that's released in the nineties, but you had like this idea of like, well, why are we here? What are we doing? And in that. Against that, you had this myth of the greatest generation, of World War II, of this idea of a defining struggle of good against evil, and why that's appealing, and why that was particularly appealing in the context of the 90s as well. And I think, like, 
Oliver Stone has argued, and there have been other arguments as well. So would you have this in your top okay, 250? Okay. All right, all right, all right, all right. So, Andrew. Yes. Do you think that Saving Private Ryan belongs on a list of the top 250 yes. movies ever made? What about you, Oh! There should probably be some Spielberg movies on this. There should probably be some Second World War movies on there. Yeah. Um, I'd probably go with Thin Red Line actually, because I think that there really? are better. I think there are better Spielberg movies, and I think that there are better Second World War movies. And while like stuff like Come and See, I think is the only other combat movie from Second World War, from the Second World War on the list. Obviously, things like Schindler's List is are on there, and things like um, again Raiders of the Lost Ark are on there in terms I'm sorry, of. It's still there. Oh, Hacksaw Ridge actually is still on there as well, but that's that I would not be keeping that in that no. context. No, to be clear. But I, I would say that if you want a Second World War film, you should probably I probably go with Thin Red Line. And I do that because that I would get like King Tora Tora Tora. But that's not really a kind of a two fifty movie, is it? No, it's not. Well, I mean it also yeah had its own complicated history and stuff like that. I'm not a huge like I, I admire it more than I yeah. say it, if that makes sense, if that's a kind of Yeah, a, it's kind of like one of those ones to watch on a Sunday. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting for what it tried to be rather than yeah. what it ended up being, if that makes sense as well. Because it was from both sides. That's it, exactly. And yeah. it was meant to be, like, it was meant to be Kurosawa directing the Japanese side as well, I think, at one point as well. Yeah. Which is absolutely fascinating. And I wonder how that would have turned out. So I think that there are better Spielberg films, and I think there are probably better Second World War films. Though I don't begrudge it, its place, to be honest. Would it be on your own personal 250, Andrew? Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I was really impressed um, uh, watching it again today. Like, obviously, you watch it once and you don't really forget kind of that. How it feels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the whole kind of, of the movie um, stays with you. Yeah. All of it, not just the opening the sequence. beach scene. Yeah. No. And I mean, even this is, this is one of those things where it's weird where I, you don't necessarily recall a lot of, say, and I, I want to say plot or dialogue in context if that makes sense which is weird because there's a conversation about how you have to remember context for things for them to remember them properly but you remember almost all of it and like shots or sequences or feelings or like developments as opposed to so you remember how things unfold even if you don't remember the exact image if that makes sense right it made it it kind of had that indelible impression on me if that makes sense Mm. because again I, I would have watched this for the first time I didn't see it in cinemas I would have seen it on home media. Now, I don't know if this would have been... Uh, probably as part of Mooney Family Movie Night when my dad and mom would, like, rent movies and we'd come back we watch them on a Friday night, Saturday night. And I don't remember. I think this would have been one of the last VHSs that we watched. And I think it may actually have been one of those that was split across two cassettes. Remember those movies that you used to get where wow. you, had to, you had to swap at a certain point? Wow. No. Yeah, um trying to think because it would have been a, it's about three hours really? long so yeah i think that would have been like the limit on a cassette is about two and 40 right really? this is two and 50 nearly yeah oh yeah i don't recall too many uh, uh, vhs's where maybe people didn't always make <laughs> long movies <laughs> no no they didn't um like the the average length of a blockbuster has gotten much longer um, yeah although in fairness the average length of movies overall is about the same as it was in the mid 60s it's just that the family-friendly summer blockbusters and sort of like the mass audience films are getting longer as opposed to the art house films, which are getting shorter. So would you recommend? Yes. So, Andrew, would you recommend this movie to other people if they haven't seen it? I'd say most people have seen this. But if, if they, <laughs> you always yell at me when I say that. When I say if for some reason no, you yeah, haven't yet seen you're, this. You're, you're, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. Andrew needs to sleep. Yeah, you, 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 
Sorry, this is a, I'm just enjoying the opportunity to be a bit of a dick about this. But it's, like, <laughs> it's very rare I get to invoke a double standard, so I'm going to actually call you on this one. <laughs> but no, um, I, no, to be fair, I think you might have a point. Like, this yeah, was the biggest yeah. movie of 1998. Again, the average age of the person voting on IMDb, yeah, the average sort of sensibility. Like, having said that, it's 20 years ago. Yeah. So, like, I am... Um, Maybe maybe we have young people. Well, you know that <laughs> perish the thought because we we're, cool, we're, cool, we're cool. We do. We actually have age breakdown, which what? I can show you afterwards as well. Um, but I will actually say we've had the Ronan, uh, who's been a guest on this podcast as well. Um, uh, he hadn't seen it. He only saw it last Thursday. Oh. Uh, screening at the IFI, actually, of all things. Um, so there are people out there who haven't yet had a chance to see it, to be fair. And it may primarily be an age thing, because I imagine yeah. that a lot of people of our generation will have watched it and remembered seeing it and stuff like that. Because I remember... It was being... a very important movie for people of our age, because, like, we um, lived through World War Two, and we were, like... Uh, <laughs> we, we were, uh, Saving Private Ryan came out, like... At about at just just a few years before we died, <laughs> so, um, um, it was a chance to kind of you know relive that to get a proper sense yeah, of it. Yeah. To be fair, um, yeah, it is it is worth noting that yeah, just in terms of people who are around, I think there's something like there's only thirty uh, veterans from D Day who are still around, and they expect that within the next five or six years, those... Refresh that, sorry. Statistic, right? <laughs> Jesus, Andrew. Um, sorry. All right, with that in mind, and that very tasteful remark, we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. What is Saving Private Ryan about for you? Well, I think it's about um, the value of of human life, and I think um, World War Two is a. I mean, it's a story about World War Two. Yeah, but it, it it's attaching also a meaning to World yes. War Two. So it wasn't just like a series of kind of uh, maneuvers, you know, where 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 or you set have, pieces, yeah, like... yeah, where you have like people parachuting in. You've seen things like um, the longest day, yes, where which is very, another D Day landing, movie, yeah, yeah, where it's very much kind of telling the um, the facts, uh, almost like the bullet yeah, points like somewhere. the strategic and tactical um, story, and it's the same with. Um, What's the Operation uh, Market Garden movie as well? It's like Gene Hackman plays a Polish guy in it. It's uh, it's by the same writer as um, The Longest Day, I think. A Bridge Too Far. Yeah. Where they were, they were, they were invading um, the Netherlands, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like that, really. It's 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 about more than that. It's it's about it's about um, for me the value of human life. Because they're 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 going to uh, save the life of this one person, yeah. and at the end, when his life is saved, not only have they given their lives to save him, which is kind of a, a testament to how much that life is worth, but um, it's Tom Hanks saying to uh, Private uh, Ryan earned this. 
Yeah, you have and to make the sacrifice exactly, worth it. which tells you that everyone's life is should be, you know, um, worth all of the kind of that you have. The, yeah, yeah, the, the greatest there's generation, a kind of a responsibility based on the life that you're living as a result of the sacrifice of these people of, of like the, again this is the mythology of the greatest generation and i mean we say mythology like again the world as we know it exists because of that generation because of yeah. the sacrifices made during the second world war uh, so it is easy to be cynical about it like but again there is this sense of massive obligation i mean the the closing monologue from ryan at the grave which is I mean, if, Every if it day wasn't I... for World War Two, we'd have Germans telling us what to do. Andrew would like to announce that he has joined the Eurexit party. Um, he would like to stage his own, what he would describe as a reverse D-Day. It's true, though. No one else is saying it. <laughs> Nobody else has the guts to say it. Uh, yeah, this turned into a radical right-wing podcast so fast. Oh, let's not burn the bondholders. <laughs> but... Um, but yeah, no, it, you have this kind of, like, again, you have that monologue from Ryan where he talks about, like, the weight that he feels on his shoulders, the obligation that he felt placed on him by Miller, like, the sacrifice that these men made, even, like, back when he's played by Matt Damon. And by the way, I love the statistic. I love the statistic. This is the first lost Matt Damon movie. <laughs> Matt Damon, you can't send him anywhere. You really, oh, yeah. I said, um, they did the math. They figured out that it would take, like, 5% of the US GDP to get Matt Damon back from all of the places where he's been lost. You know, like France or Mars, Mars yeah. or another universe or galaxy, yeah. another solar system. So, you know, yeah. like there's a long history of rescuing Matt Damon that kind of begins with saving Private Ryan. But even when he's on the bridge, even when he's having that conversation with Miller and he's asking the names of the soldiers who died as part of this mission already, which is Owens and Capri. No, it's Wade. Oh, sorry, Wade. Uh, sorry, Caparzo. Wade and Caparzo. When he, he's talking about like, and he 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 weighs their names very heavily. Yeah, Giovanni Ribisi. Yes, um, which is great. One of the great things about this movie is if you can't remember the names of the characters because they're all said so quickly, um, you can just name the actors. I mean, there's even like Ted Danson is in this. John Delancey has a voiceover role. Brian Cranston. Paul Giamatti. You're like, wait, wait, wait a second. <laughs> You're going to leave the village with Ted Danson and Paul Giamatti and not bring them with you? Yeah. What are you doing, guys? <laughs> this movie could easily be like 5 to 10% more fun. Oh, jeez. Oh, oh, God. Uh, I, I got it. All these Germans are shooting at me. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, the moment where Paul Giamatti sits down and accidentally exposes a German high command. Damn is, it. Is a, it's a ridiculously unbrand Paul Giamatti moment. Except for the fact that Paul Giamatti didn't have a brand yet. Um, but even things like... Go to sit down and end up <laughs> knocking over a wall. Oh, God. Why is this happening to me? Um, but Nathan Fillion's in there. Leyland Orser's in there. Barry Pepper's in there. It's a, it's a fantastic cast. Barry Pepper gets, like, a really awesome character. Yeah, he's the sniper who says yeah. like the Lord's. Well, I don't know if it's the Lord's prayer, but he, he recites scripture every time that he's he takes a Jackson. life. 
Yes, he's Jackson the sniper. And, like it's, it's some of the best kind of um, shots in this. Yeah. Like through through uh, like um um. Well, during the beach she's landing, she's got a Yeah, yeah, but but even in when when they're in the village, yes, with the sniper, where, uh, Caparzo gets shot. Yes, the sniper the with sni- the rifle. You're looking at it, and you're looking across, and then all of a sudden, you see. Uh, Jackson and you see the little kind of uh, yellow little blink yeah like of of the bullet and then the next shot is is is, is the scope and the eye behind the scope being yeah. punctured which is remarkable yeah and again this is the thing where you get to Truffaut's can you make an anti-war movie where it's like a lot of this stuff looks really cool it does and it does look no really in cool. fairness yeah. it does and like the they it makes it's weird, but yeah, it it be, be, because it it is kind of like telling you how um, terrible war is. But for stupid people like me, I want to go out and like kill Nazis. You know, yeah. they, 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 as, well, uh, sorry, you did. They, um, <laughs> just to be clear, they're not stupid for killing Nazis. But I um I'm I'd You're be stupid more... to find war appealing. Yes. I wanna get those um socks with, oh, the, with the axles. Yeah. That I moment remember there's... that movie. Uh I, I remember Fury, is that it? part this oh. part of, 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 of the of, movie. Of the movie. Like the bit um, where the soldier's trying to creep up really on the panzer and blows himself up and it's just almost a red cloud and a helmet isn't yes, it yes yeah uh, which is just sort of stunning there's so many there are bits i had forgotten about yeah. like i'd forgotten that that the first time they i had actually forgotten that the first time they try to use the sticky bomb the guy just blows up yeah um i think we both like had a very audible reaction sitting down watching it at that yeah, moment as well which the is... the uh moments as well where um i think they I think they call him uh, 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 Fish um, at some point, but it's Adam Goldberg's character, uh, Mellish. The scene where he gets uh, stabbed. Yes. Yeah, is very uh, affecting. Yes, and and very visceral. Like, it's difficult to to watch. So much, so much of, of... of this uh, of this movie. movie, and and like you see, uh, Hacksaw Ridge, and it's probably like as kind of uh, graphic and violent, like blood. graphic in, in in some parts. But I'm just looking at at Hacksaw Ridge and thinking, oh, this is really distasteful. Yeah, it's gross. Like the, the um, where where whereas this is kind of shocking in a sort of um, profound um, way and in a way that's intentional. Yeah. 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 But as as you say, it's difficult to make an anti-war movie. Yeah. It's difficult to make a war movie without making it look like really good. Uh, yeah, I mean, even even Dunkirk does this well, as well. You Dunkirk's want to a movie blow up running away with a bazooka. Yeah, um, or you want to like admire those cool shots, like yeah. uh, without using the pun, as you point out. But like again, the way in which it's framed, the the way in the craft in which it's done makes Jackson's Stampering. kills yeah makes Jackson's kills look very impressive and visceral mm. and you have that moment of relief now to be fair to Spielberg first of all you know I, I think there is some truth in what Truffaut said where it's very impossible it's almost impossible to do it where again you have even things like Full Metal Jacket which is again Kubrick who is a much more cynical human being I would argue than Spielberg mm. even Kubrick at certain points makes combat look thrilling and exciting as opposed to unpleasant and visceral and he even he sort of he waits the movie so that you avoid seeing too much combat in general. You're halfway yeah, through. Yeah, I think he does an, an okay job. Yeah, of it. but he, again, it makes it kind of feel like a horrible kind of like an experience of like 
kind of bullying yeah um just being kind of broken down as a person yeah and turned like, into I, a machine. I suppose that the uh vietnam movie with michael j fox in it casualties of war with yeah. sean penn yes it's all about a rape yes it? yeah um but i mean like spielberg again like i think spielberg does it rather well like because again that opening 20 minutes on the beach yeah which is absolutely astounding virtuoso filmmaking and again this is this is spielberg this is a director who was you know is one of the most american you point out one of the most broadly accessible and again this is broadly accessible everybody went to see this this was the highest grossing film at the american box office in 1998 so it's not like it's an art house film or it's not like it was too violent for audiences to actually watch but it is uncomfortable and it's uncomfortable in a way that spielberg films to this point i don't generally associate them being with the exception of schindler's list for example and it's kind of amazing to think that the guy who I associate with stuff like Raiders of the Lost Ark, stuff like E.T., even stuff like, I know Jaws is violent and has that really good jump scare in it with the, you know, the body in the boat and stuff like that. But even that is largely suspense driven. Right. And, you know, and that sense of dread that's mounting as opposed to being like pure visceral violence because obviously. There's you, so I, much um, of like gore. Yeah. In, in, in this. this. Yeah. Like the, the in that first scene where it, 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 like sorry it's not the first scene but it, it's the the scene in the beach we have a person kind of like picking up his own arm you have to see um uh, and wandering around dazed and confused their, uh, legs Limbs. losing their heads you have uh, people with their uh, intestines uh, hanging out coming out you have Tom and then getting shot where in the head. he's pulling somebody along the beach and then he realizes that he's just pulling like a corpse a yeah. torso yeah yeah. You have even scenes like, for example, the guy who gets shot in the head in his helmet, he survives, yeah. he takes it off, and his brains are splattered over the sand immediately afterwards. There's a, Yeah, the guy on the phone. Yeah. There's like, it's really visceral and aggressive. And even things like the the burning of the bunker with the flamethrower. Yeah. Where you have the bodies flailing as they fall over. Yeah, and the instructions shouting. To, like, like, let them burn, let don't them shoot burn, them. Yeah. Um, and things like that. The massacring of sort of like POWs and stuff like that. And again, like... I think the film is Spielbergian in the sense of its moral calculus eventually comes down to the idea that saving Ryan was a worthwhile thing to do. But it's still a lot more visceral than I would have expected from Spielberg if I hadn't seen Schindler's List beforehand. And I hadn't seen Schindler's List before I saw this. So like for me in 1998, this was a shock for me from Spielberg that he could do things that were this graphic and things that were this shocking and things that were this violent and things that were this unsettling. And I kind of, I admire that about it. And I feel like while this is still quintessentially Spielberg, while this is still a movie, and you're right, it's a movie, it's a metaphor for the world, for the Second World War, for the Holocaust. It's sacrificing lives to protect others can be a worthwhile endeavor. Like the characters spend the entire movie debating it back and forth. You have Ryben, who ironically is the one soldier who survives, played by Edward Burns. Who's the one who is most aggressively sort of opposed to this idea of going on the rescue mission? He's the one who's complaining constantly to Miller while they're marching through the. Oh, that's right. He does survive, yeah. doesn't he? he? Yeah, which is I like. I have it in my head that like everybody dies, dies but, but Matt Damon. Yeah. I remembered it that way as well. I yeah. forgot that Upham survived as well. Yes. Um, but I mean, I'm we're probably going. Up... <laughs> like, <laughs> we'll talk about Upham in a moment, I suspect. I'm, I'm like. Davies played like a few of those sorts of characters um in the 90s he was in kind of um legends of the fall as well um he played those kind of 
uh, weebly uh, nerd yeah. kind of weak yeah um, little guys because he's, yeah. he's a very physically diminutive sort of figure yeah. he's very small yeah, yeah. And, you, and even his screen presence is small as well because you have people like say Danny DeVito to pick an example but you have character actors who are small who have big presences Tom Cruise is probably a big example right. whereas Davies always looks small yeah and doesn't have like really the intensity yes well he has I think he can have his own intensity and stuff but it's yeah it's not the you're now I don't think you're ever watching him and thinking he's a hero no yeah and he doesn't get really to to be a hero in this no no he definitely doesn't he he spends a lot of time as a like even during the combat sequence in the village at the climax he's high well first of all he he really lets uh like he he's the reason malice yes does yeah and he's not even a threat. The German, the SS commando comes down the stairs and Walks just passes him as if he doesn't matter, as if he's not there. Uh, which is, and he spends most of the, the, the climax sort of cowering. You know, his job is to be Johnny on the spot uh, yeah. with the ammo and to get the ammo there. He's not and on the spot. He's yet. not on the spot at all. You have characters who run out of ammo. Like when Jackson is up there in the sniper's nest, his, the guy who's up there with him has run out of ammo at that point. That's why Jackson is sniping so wildly at the climax. It's because they don't have ammo. Mellish. I don't, I don't think they were um, uh, a, a expecting Upham to make his way. <laughs> All the way up to <laughs> sure. such... Uh, yeah. But uh, I mean, okay, but even Mellish is yelling for ammo, for example, yeah. at that point. Himself and Max and, Martini. And also asking him to, you know... Not get me, help this, me, prevent <laughs> this guy from stabbing dark. me, yes, with, yeah. this, with this knife. I was, ho- like, because I had forgotten the movie, and I felt like the, a satisfying conclusion to Upham would be if he had walked up the stairs, not said anything. Oh, I got shot. shot him through the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they would feel bad about it, and they would say, hey, um... You brought you brought the you brought the ammo you brought you brought the ammo you you're, did good you're a good guy I'm yeah. sorry of him yeah. um. <laughs> instead you get like Mellish is pretty much right about Upham from yeah, that yeah. he's a real liability yeah I mean because it's also worth noting Upham spares the is responsible for the sparing of the German uh, when they take the sort of artillery sort of shelling place because it's yeah. the uh, Steamboat Willie I think is how he's named in the script the German who digs the graves yeah. Um, it's like Betty Boop, what a dish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Betty Grable, what gams. What gams, eh? Hey, hey. I'm American. Oh, say, can you see? Oh, say, can you see? Um, oh, say, but, can I see? But, I say, can you see? <laughs> which is great. <laughs> but like, I love that. And this is one of the things where you get that fine line that Spielberg walks, where like Spielberg is just cynical enough like this is still recognizably uh, that's pretty kind of you know hammy what come on the, 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 like all the that bit where the, stuff. no the yeah. bit where Upham lets the German go and the German kills Miller is it um no no I mean I mean when they're they're uh, the um the bit with the German kind of oh, like okay. saying all the okay no I, I was thinking more in the sense of like Upham like arguing for because de- it happens repeatedly over the course of the film characters argue for decency and the importance of decency and the film repeatedly undercuts them the there's the helping of- is that he's read about like it in books yes but he's not capable of, of actually being, experiencing like, it. decent himself yeah 
like of 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 sh- sh- he's read about kind of courage and virtue they're not capable and yeah. of being courageous when it's required yeah but i mean well sorry i mean like he's 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 running around a, a, a combat a zone in, yeah in france being shot at yeah um, and he was not, you know, he hasn't spent any time in the field or anything right. like that. And I mean, you know, I what... criticize him too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. I <guess. laughs> this is the thing where it's like uh, when we talk about like Dunkirk and why I think Dunkirk's fascinating is because it's a movie essentially about characters like Upham where they they just want to get the hell out of these war zones. And I it's weird that it's like I feel like that's a much more relatable motivation. I feel like that's something that I can relate to <laughs> as a human being. I'm like, I, I watch Saving Private Ryan and I'm like, I feel I'm worried that I would be Upham in this situation is my big fear or my big takeaway. But like, I like that Upham convinces uh, Miller in particular um, to spare. I, the I, I liked, um, I liked uh, Jackson. I liked Horvath. Yes, played by Tom Sizemore. Yeah. Do you know that Tom Sizemore had to get drug tests every day on set? Really? Yep, Spielberg insisted on it. And he told him that if he failed any of those drug tests, he'd reshoot his scenes with a different actor. Really? Yep. Why? Because he had... He he was going through through that stage of his career where he was dealing with drug addiction. Um, And he had a reputation as well in terms of the press and being difficult to manage and stuff like that. Um, so yes, he was getting drug tests apparently every day, um, and they were being sent to a lab. And if he failed, he was told that the movie would be reshot without him. Just say, hey, what, what's what's this in your bag? No, it's just uh, dirty. It's from the beach, just It's. Do you say angel dust? No, I said Africa dust. Um, but yeah, and it's it's also worth noting actually that Spielberg shot all of the movie in sequence as well, in continuity. Really? Which was the first time that he'd done that since E.T. Even the beach sequence. The beach sequence at the start, which he did in storyboard, which is uh, remarkable for a sequence that is as complex. And as... No, no, because... It, it, I, I like the thought of doing it kind of... No. <laughs> actually, feck off, Darren. That wasn't... It wasn't done in sequence. Because it makes no sense for them to shoot the first scene... And then say, oh, okay, thanks oh, very much. We'll see you guy. in a few yeah, weeks. Yeah, we'll, we'll see you in a few months yeah. when we've, when we've went like, uh, over to Ireland. Yeah. To, to, to shoot in Oxford Beach. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you stay right there. there. Don't leave this cemetery. <laughs> Remember what you're wearing. <laughs> okay, but the combat sequences from, from beginning to end, because Spielberg's talked about this. Right. Um, so like the sequence off the beach uh, was shot uh, in continuity, in sequence. Um, and like there were no storyboards involved, which is apparently a massive risk in terms of stuff like pyrotechnics and stuff like that. But Spielberg wanted to be on the ground with the characters. He shot it all handheld, as you can tell. It's kind of interesting watching a movie from 1998 that's handheld because we think of a lot about like handheld cinematography today as a result of stuff like the Bourne movies, for example. And with with, with that, like how much of it is kind of um, okay? You have you have a handheld camera and you have a handheld camera and you like kind of uh, try shooting some of this and you're going to go up there and do that and like like how chaotic is it or is this is is it very much like okay everybody stop everything and go back while, to starting positions yeah while we um this guy with a handheld camera is going to shoot um this very specific thing and everybody uh, all of you guys we've told you what to do yeah um it, well spielberg's like and this is the reason why spielberg sort of did it this way and particularly did the beach uh in in that way was because what he wanted to do is he wanted to find moments as he reenacted it if that makes sense right so he would so it was more sort of chaotic. as you pointed out yeah. sort of chaotic so it would be like he would find that you know 
Giovanni Ribasini would be like falling behind because he tripped over an extra and he'd be like, okay, well then we're going to go back and focus on you. Or it's like, well, actually, hold on. Half of our cast got sort of separated. You know, so we're, okay, we'll work with that. We'll play with that in terms of editing and stuff like that. I've done the dead fish. Yes, that was a lovely shot. And the panning of the camera over to the dead Ryan. Yeah. Uh, which is a very effective shot because, I mean, not only does that get you to the sequence later on, but it's also very effective because... The movie's called Saving Private Ryan. That yeah. made, like, Ryan is the only character, arguably, whose name you know when you're, like, in that sequence. Because you haven't heard him, you know, if you've been, it's very loud, it's very chaotic. Maybe you heard him being called Miller, but it's entirely, entirely possibly missed it. Like, all you know is they're on the beach to save this character called Ryan. And, and the camera pans. Hanks, and I guess, like, you could easily watch this movie and not be like, oh, there's... Barry Pepper. Yeah. <laughs> there is um, Tom there's Giovanni Ribisi. Yeah, because a lot of this is hindsight as well. Yeah, there's yeah. Vin Diesel. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So all you're thinking is kind of, oh, there's Tom Hanks. He's got a, he's probably in the right place as well. <laughs> 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 like right at the back of, of the group. Of, of that carrier. Yeah. That, yeah, that they have to all kind of like, jump out the side of the character uh, uh, of the um of the yeah the, the boat as well the, the, the um amphibious vehicle yeah um it is it is worth noting actually that like there were about 225,000 service members were killed or wounded or went missing in Normandy from June to August 1944 which is remarkable at Omaha they claimed more than 200 yards of beach and then had to scale 35 to 60 yards of cliffs which is outstanding, which is like an incredible feat for them yeah. to have to accomplish in that time. Yeah, because th- this isn't kind of... I, I, I imagine the... the um, I don't know if the beaches at Omaha were anything like this. This is all Wexford. This it? is all shot in Wexford on the south coast of Ireland, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, With the Irish... Uh, yes, forces as yeah. extras involved as well. Um, very similar to Braveheart, actually, as well. Uh, but I mean, even that sequence at the end of that where it pans the body with Ryan on the back of it. Like, when you're watching it for the first time, you're wondering, like, is this an ironic title? Have we already lost Ryan and it's only 20 minutes into the film? You know, is Ryan unsavable? Is this a thematic statement as well? Do you know that this was actually the soul... the post back to... <laughs> it's to a flashback Yeah. <laughs> oh, like, like Live, Die, Repeat. Or, yeah. <laughs> the Tom Cruise movie. The, um, what was it called? It was Live, Die, Repeat, but it was also All You Need Is Kill and The Edge of Tomorrow, which is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> but um, interesting to note, do you know that this is... Well, first of all, this is inspired by a true story. Obviously, really? well, I mean, you know, obviously World War Two happened and they did land at, at Omaha. What? But <laughs> it's shock. Um, but no, it, it's based on the story of the Nyland Brothers. But this sole survivorship story, and they actually mentioned this um, in the, the film, Nyland actually. Brothers? The Brothers? The Nyland Brothers, yes. Um, yeah. Like the gallery. Um, but the concept of sole survivorship, uh, which is mentioned by Brian Cranston's character, actually. And they actually mentioned the Sullivan Brothers uh, in particular as well. Because this was in November 1942, Japanese torpedoes sank the USS Junau during the Battle of Guadalcanal. And on board were five brothers, George, Francis, Joseph, Madison, and Albert Sullivan, who'd all enlisted after the death of a friend at Pearl Harbor. The Navy agreed that all five of them should serve together on the same ship, which meant that when the ship went down, they had to actually write five letters to the mother, um, telling her that all five of her children were dead. Um... 
In fact, actually, like, there were 30 sets of brothers um, on that ship when it went down as well. So this wasn't an uncommon occurrence. But as a result of this, um, it enacted the sole survivor policy, which is known as Directive 1315.15, which is the uh, special separation policies for survivorship. And the idea was that if you were the only surviving sibling, so if all your brothers had fought or, all, you know, in the war and had died, you would get to go home to your family. And it's since been revised multiple times. In Vietnam, it became something you had to volunteer for. It's been restricted in certain contexts. Uh, but it's been a policy of the US military ever since. What inspired this particular film was the Nyland Brothers, uh, which is kind of fascinating, actually, because the Nyland Brothers uh, lost, again, similar to, the, similar to the Ryans here, in the Pacific, uh, some were lost as well. During D-Day, some were lost as well. I was actually the one who was captured, uh, the one who died and was missing in the Pacific was actually found in a prisoner of war camp after the war, um, uh, which was nice. So he was reunited. But Nyland was a paratrooper who was parachuted behind... was in grammar school. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I love that scene. Oh, with the uh, Nathan Fillion's fake Private Ryan. Yeah. Where, and he's like, are, are, my, are my brothers <laughs> okay? okay. And, uh, I'm sure your brothers are fine. He says, yeah, I'm sure they're fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's just told um, that the, his brothers are dead. There's no easy way to say this. And it's like, but there is an easy way to say they're probably grand. I don't know. What am I, your father? <laughs> um, and it's, um, but I, actually, is it worth discussing Tom Hanks in this, actually? Um, I mean, we can. Did he, he does that kind of Tom Hanks thing. What? But it, like there, there, there are moments in it in the movie where, like, I feel like the scene with Matt Damon when Matt Damon is kind of talking about his brothers. I feel like Matt Damon is this is the one where you need a context, you need a context to remember. Yeah, yeah, but where, 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 where Matt Damon is telling this kind of like funny, kind of uh, story, I don't think they work well as a partnership because there isn't really a very it, it, it chemistry between to, yeah the there isn't a good good a give and take in that yeah because i think like matt damon is doing a very kind of like a specific thing yeah like he's laughing about this story it's not um i think like uh, ironically tom hanks's kind of performance it feels a bit kind of like uncomfortable and yeah. I, uh, I, I, I apparently I, I think I've heard that um, that was there was there an extent to which that wasn't in the script or I don't know in particular about that scene I do know yeah. that for example all the actors went through basic training together for 10 days with the ex Matt Damon went through his separately right so that he would so that when he was introduced to the cast there would be that sort of frisson there as well there would be a tension between them they wouldn't have that same bond with him that they did with each other but I wonder if when you mention that difference between Hanks and Damon, particularly in that scene, I wonder they if part of make very good scene, scene partners. partners. And I wonder if maybe that's generational to a certain extent, because I think at this point, Matt Damon was like an up and coming young star. He was recommended to Spielberg by Robin Williams, who'd obviously worked with him on Goodwill Hunting, which I don't think had been released at the time they were filming this. But he was like this young actor. You want to keep an eye on him. He'll be great for this thing that you're doing. But like. Damon at the time, I don't know if you can say it about him hey, still. Hey, Stephen. <laughs> this, this guy is really great. It's like, how do you want him out? <laughs> <laughs> Why does Robin Williams sound like Rodney oh. Dangerfield? Um, no. <laughs> the, 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 the 
okay in Robin Williams kind of sound. Yeah. Am, am I completely? No, is, is no, that no, terrible? no, that's not. Is, 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 it's not such a bad one. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Um, but <laughs> sorry, I'm quite enjoying having the glow on the other shoe and the glow on the sort of be a little bit, you know, because it's like, why does every Darren impression sound like his Michael Caine or. Um, why does every Darren impersonation sound like his Michael Caine or Sean Connery? Because he can do one bad impersonation and is kind of committed to it. But I do think actually when you mentioned the difficulty with that scene partnership, I wonder if that's down to the fact that like at the time, I don't know how true it is now, because Damon's arguably one of the few like bona fides film stars that we have today. Um, but like at the he's time, probably more spent, naturalistic. He's probably spent that uh, yeah. now. I, I, I feel like the, the kind of born movies were probably the the peak of that to yeah, a certain extent yeah. yeah but i mean even outside of that though like i mean at the time he was young up and coming i was very naturalistic you know right very sort of like you know and and, and right. hanks is a much more or would traditionally have been like at this stage would have been very an older generation yeah kinda, yeah and there was a certain sort of a relaxed kind of a almost kind of Eastwoodian yeah of, uh, like I always think of him as Jimmy Stewart to a certain extent that's yeah, sort of like yeah. old fashioned and it's weird because like it's notable that one of the things I really like about this is it gives Hanks yeah Jimmy Stewart's Hanks, a much better comparison than, than Eastwood, Eastwood. Yeah. I'm asking what, what Tom Hanks would look like in Gran Torino um, but what I like about Tom Hanks's use here is that he uses him rather well because he's that embodiment of American decency that Hanksian decency and so, while Miller doesn't directly participate in any atrocities, you see him standing by, and that's enough to be uncomfortable of itself. He doesn't have to shoot the surrendering Germans. He no. just has to stand by and watch it happen. And while he looks disgusted and horrified, he doesn't intervene to stop it, for example. And that's enough to kind of make you sort of cynical. Or even like the dialogue that he has where he's talking about, you know, the question of whether or not he would risk his life for Ryan's or whether he'd risk his men for Ryan. He's saying that, you know, I wouldn't trade 10 Ryan's for one, you know, Vecchio or one Carpazio, one Carpazzo, you know? Carpazzo. Uh, Carpazzo. <laughs> Sorry. Carpaccio. Um, You're but just like... listing Italian foods. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you have this sense of like ambivalence that even like... Carpazzo, world... I think. Carpazzo, Carpazzo. But even no, in... No, you don't, don't say it. Okay, it's sorry. Fine. Vin Diesel. I wouldn't risk Vin him Diesel. for one Vin Diesel. <laughs> Apologies. But I mean, even Not then... for one Vin, Vin of Diesel. <laughs> yeah, one single Vin. One solitary Vin. But even then, like, you have, like, the, the conversations with Vin Diesel's character when Vin Diesel's like, I'm taking this little girl home. Not you know, Vin the Diesel in the world. <laughs> yeah. But you have this moment where like Vin Diesel's like, we got to take the kid. The decent thing to do is to take the kids and drop them in the next village over. And, you know, you have Hanks, who's this embodiment of American decency, saying we're not here to do the decent thing. It becomes unsettling of itself to a certain extent. It right. becomes like he's he's been sort of like being involved in this has like tarred him to a certain extent. And actually, one of the things I really like is the use of Ted Danson who has a very small role in this. And notably, this is one of the rare movies that I remember seeing Ted Danson in that wasn't three, you know, three I men and a lady. many movies. No, because he's primarily a TV, TV actor. yeah. But he, he's kind of like the Tom Hanks of television. He looks stra- it's strange yeah. to see him in movies, isn't yeah. it? And particularly when he's in big movies. Yeah. like It this always is- feels like, 
That's Ted Danson. <laughs> I can't believe that's a character. It's like, was Ted Danson around during D Day? I even feel like sometimes on TV that like he's playing himself, like yeah. curvy enthusiasm. Or even in, in, in was it uh, the Good Place where he's a bartender? He goes yeah. down to earth as a bartender. Um, but even, even and in Bored to Death, he uh, feels like is just <laughs> like one of the characters knows Ted Danson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, even here, what. This movie does is it uses Danson. He's he's like Tom Hanks, but for television. And so, like, you have him as like even more American what? idealism. <laughs> you don't think when I think of American television in the same way that I think of American movies, I think of Hanks. I think of American television. I think of Danson. Due to his like influence in Cheers and stuff. Oh, like he's that. not like a Jimmy Stewart uh, kind of character. Okay, I just I imagine him as a sort of a fixture. He's tall. He's skinny. Oh yeah, got, but not representing the same sort of values. Like, values. I don't as, know I, as Hanks. I kind of see him as he's more a sort of um, like a, um, a lovable scamp sort of than than okay. like a, the like decent kind of. I mean, what he's he's used here in a way where he's the guy who's like, you know. I'm sure as hell could use you around here, but I understand what you're doing. You do? Yeah. I got a couple of brothers myself. Oh, good luck. Thank you. I mean it. Find them. Get them home. And it's like you have a moment where like Tom Hanks is getting schooled in decency by Ted Danson. Which is kind of interesting. It's like, I wish we had something important to fight for. Instead, we're just trying to... <laughs> Liberate France. defeat Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> if only we had some sort of purpose. I completely understand what you're doing here. It's a yeah. good thing. But again, like... And I like that the film plays with this idea. Because you have this discussion with Leyland Orser's character. Where you have the plane that he was flying crashed. Because they put in the armor plating that was too heavy for it to protect the general. And that ended up costing the lives of 22 people for one four-star general. And the question of whether or not that's good arithmetic. And the the movie's argument that like saving Ryan is fundamentally different than risking the lives of 22 people for a four-star general. Because Ryan is an ideal, to a certain extent. The idea of bringing a lost son home to his father... Is a romantic notion in more to a certain extent, or sorry, his mother. Seem to be a father. No, Presumably which again is the spe- if you want to talk also sp- lost a father, possibly the, the husband. Um, there's your Spielberg cliche: your yeah. absent father to a certain extent. Well, part of me thinks the kid's right. What's he done to deserve this? He wants to stay here. Fine, let's leave him and go home. Yeah, but another part of me thinks. What if by some miracle we stay and actually make it out of here? Someday we might look back on this and decide that saving Private Ryan was the one decent thing we were able to pull out of this whole god-awful mess. That's what I was thinking, sir. Like you said, Captain, we do that we all earn the right to go home oh by the way i love that tom sizemore gets that line have you been watching barry i have not barry i would has... like to see it because i i do i do quite like um bill hader, bill hader. but oh, it... i watched uh, train wreck uh, 
uh, recently. I kind of enjoy that. I really like Trainwreck as well. But Barry has like, um, there's a role where Barry's going for, he's Barry's auditioning for a small role in a Jay Roach movie called Swim Instructors. And he takes the script, he's only in a couple of scenes, and he shows it to his, you know, his, his basic acting coach. As acting coach, who's played by Fonzie Henry Wrinkler, uh, is like, wait, you say... We're, oh, oh, I've seen this. Yeah. yeah. You say, oh, we're a bunch of swim instructors? That's the title. They can't cut that. And part of me is wondering if Tom Sizemore, when he got the script for, like, Saving Private Ryan, was like, yeah, I get to say the title. They can't cut that. Because it's, it's a very hokey title drop. I think we both sort of, like, chuckled at each other and sort of gave each other a side eye when he's like, Saving Private Ryan might just be the one decent and possibly best picture Oscar winning thing that we do in this stupid, crazy war that is 1998 at the box office. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 kind of like, well, we really did break bad, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> it's that moment in, in Terrence Malick's film where it's like, man, we, we really walked the thin red line, didn't we, together? Um, it's, it's very, like, it's a moment that feels cut for a trailer. You know, it's the moment where you can tell that, like, Tom Sizemore agent is like, yeah, he's going to be in all the trailers, all the TV spots. <laughs> this is going to be the big, the Tom Sizemore moment is going to happen right now as a result of this. You know, I, I enjoyed, and it was kind of, um, Tom Hanks does get to kind of, um, show off some of his sort of comedy, uh, chops in. Yeah. Um, and he had a nice bit of business with that cafeteria. Yes, the bit where he's trying to get coffee in France. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the little sort of thing. French coffee. <laughs> Just not the same as That's in America, American is coffee. it? No. Um, the service is much, much worse. Um, it is worth noting, like, actually, this is the thing where the movie walks that line. And I'm not like... The Alice Jardine scene isn't, uh, isn't as great as it could have been. Which one, sorry? Yeah, Al, Al, uh, when when yeah when Matt Damon was talking about Alice Jardine. Oh yeah, the, yeah, the, 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 the girl, girl in the, the barn. Yeah, yeah, who uh, fell off the oak tree and hit every branch on the way down. Right, like like it's it, it it's not a great scene in some ways, but it it felt like it could have been like you see you see the way uh, Matt Damon and Robin Williams interact in Goodwill uh, Hunting those scenes yeah. in in Goodwill Hunting. Where, but, but where, I think that that's where Robin Williams, Williams is, is is telling um, Matt Damon about like his wife farting in bed, yeah, and it 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 it, it almost feels as if that's supposed to be a kind of like a similar scene, and yeah. it just isn't. And I think that that's probably down to the fact that you know Williams is a much more, and again, Hanks probably was back in the eighties when he was doing stuff like The Burbs, for example, or even things like Dragnet um, when he was when he was doing that comedy phase. But I'm not sure he ever had that sort of like improvisational sort of naturalistic sort of way that I, no, I would associate with Williams. No, very different kind yeah. of comedy. A- energy, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, and I, I can see why Williams would work better with Damon than I think Hanks does, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um. That's it. And again, this is the thing where you have the weird push and pull of the film, where on the one hand, it's more cynical than you expect from Spielberg. You have um, Vin Diesel dying because he tries to save a child, mm. because the idea is that war is no place for decency. Um, which is a very like, I think it's a very powerful sequence, um, and it's it's shot like shot high in inverted commas, but it's handled very well in terms of editing, in terms of pacing, where he gets to put the girl down and then he gets shot. You know, it's um, funny that it's difficult to kind of take it seriously because it's Vin Diesel. Yes, in hindsight, it's a little bit. It's like you're waiting for him to tell Miller it's about family. Toretto. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> running for Miller to yell, get Toretto out of here. It's like, the, 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 Sergeant. The sniper just like uh, smashes his bottle of Corona. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Sergeant Rock is like, oh, we got another candy ass out here on the field. Um, Rock will just run through. <laughs> the bullets, the bullets <laughs> bounce off the wall. No, <laughs> he'll... he'll He'll go through like the ground floor of, of that church and then the whole thing. They will just collapse down, down yeah. with the sniper inside of it. Um, it. But there is this sort of push and pull where it's a little bit nastier, and a little bit more vicious than I think war movies had been to this point. And it's notable that like when Spielberg talks about his influences in terms of making the film, he doesn't talk about films like you mentioned The Longest Day because it's not a Longest Day type no, film. Yeah, he, it isn't really at all. He, like... Um, like I said, the, 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 the longest day and um, uh, stuff like and, a bridge too a, far, a bridge too far, were and and Torah, Torah, Torah as well were almost kind of a very dispassionate sort of telling Detailed, of sort of what like happened point by point day. almost yeah. to a certain extent and what were the kind of challenges and what yeah. what were what were the plans that people had in place yeah. what frustrations kind of like arose uh, yeah, to intrude yeah. on those but like uh, Spielberg's talked about how his biggest influences in terms of filming weren't those narrative films they were instead documentaries so for example Memphis Bell Why We Fight John Ford's Midway documentary John Huston's Liberation of Nazi Death Camps for example but even like photography, he mentions Robert Capus. Uh, John Huston, yeah, he he filmed some of the um, liberation of the the concentration camps. Oh wow! Um, I yeah, have no idea. Well, again, this is the thing where um, Eisenhower actually made a point to have this stuff recorded, but he would have used the the Ross, propagandists who were um, yeah, who were they were there. I mean, you say propagandists like it's a bad thing, but documentaries. John Ford as well. Uh, John Ford would have done Midway. He he sort of did wow. a documentary about Midway as well. I mean, there's uh, what's it called? Is it uh, Five Came Back? I think is what it's called. It's a documentary series on Netflix that's very worth looking at in terms of the American dire- directors who would have been doing films like that during uh, World War Two. Um, what what about um, uh, Orson Welles? Would he have been too young? Um, throughout World War II, actually, Orson Welles unreservedly supported the U.S. involvement overseas, both on the airwaves and in the printed page. Oh, so he radio. wasn't doing film. Yes, yeah, he wasn't yeah, doing film. of course. Yeah. So he did like the, the Mercury Wonder Show and Entertaining Servicemen as well. So he, he did a whole right. sort of bunch of stuff. Uh, he was also, again, <laughs> of course, the Hearst uh, family made a point in their papers of questioning his patriotism. Because, of course, they did uh, during the course of the war as well. Uh, but like what's interesting is you have that they also apparently put a, a miner in his um, hotel room. Really? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, they they were trying to uh, uh, to smear him, stitch him up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, it's interesting that like again, and, uh, there was like a photographer from the paper there. Oh, of course, there, there was ready yeah, yeah. to to take pictures. But again, the thing with say Spielberg well, is the story that Wells tells. Um, uh, Wells is a great storyteller. Oh yeah. Fair. Um, and again, I don't mean that facetiously. Like, listening to Wells tell stories is amazing. Uh, but I mean, things like... So you have that sense of Spielberg shooting, like, oh, as, sorry. as a documentarian gonna, to a certain extent. And again... I'm not going to take that bait. The celluloid is treated uh, to make it look like war photography. So it's heavily desaturated. It's greys. It's browns. It looks... It's shot on a handheld camera as well, so you get that rough and ready feel. But you still, even accepting that sort of like creeping, those occasional moments of cynicism, like the death of Vin Diesel for trying to rescue the kid, or Upham letting that German go and the German then killing Miller, which is a very cynical idea of like showing decency in war or refusing to execute a Wait, hold on, no. The... Yeah, Steamboat Willie. 
Steamboat Willie? Is one of the Germans at the climax. He's the one who shoots Miller in the heart. That's why Upham executes him. That's the same guy. That's the same the guy, same guy, guy who, 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 who kills uh, Mellish? No, Mellish is a different character. He's not Steamboat Willie at all. He just looks I think like you're a... wrong. I've gone to the fact machine and checked this preemptively, actually, because I thought the same thing. But this is the, the, the same guy who killed uh, Mellish was the same guy who shot uh, uh, Tom Hanks. No. No, the guy who killed Mellish was neither the guy who shot Hanks nor Steam, nor the German who up him let go. The German up him let go was the German who shot Miller. The guy who stabbed um, Mellish was neither, was not that man. I can go to the fact machine and check again if you want. No, no. Um, l- 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 I preemptively l- l- check Kind of people on, 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 on Twitter getting angry and yelling <laughs> about this. But no, I mean, it is it is worth sort of noting. But again, even with those moments of cynicism, it still becomes, like, it's still a very... So you didn't try to say, like, when, when, um... When when Upham was pointing a gun at him, he wasn't like, I say, can you see? It's like, I, I'll try it again, yeah. I say, can you see? Yeah, just be casual. Um, Betty Grable, what gams? Am I right? Am I right? Um, yeah. Heil Hitler. I mean, <laughs> Hitler. <laughs> but like you have those moments of cynicism and weariness in there, which are very Spielberg. Uh, sorry, which are very like what you don't expect from Spielberg to a certain extent if you haven't seen Schindler's List. But you have that juxtaposed with very conventional, very standard war movie beats like the soldiers talking about their girls back home. I'm thinking of Ryben in particular where he's, you know, talking uh, about like... The, stuff is kind of like some of those scenes it's are very pretty gammy. Yeah, it's they? very boilerplate. It's very yeah. sort of like what you expect from a World War Two. That's II. why like... Like they, Tough guys that, being That's sensitive. what I mean when I talk about like Spielberg that he couldn't be... One of my kind of favorite, favorite directors. Filmmakers. It's because of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I do think it creates a little bit of a tonal imbalance in there as well. Like, I think that, like, if you're going to be grounded and cynical and gritty, and if you are going to try and be visceral and in the face, you can't do that and then have a sequence where, like, you have the soldiers before the final battle crying at, at you know, Edith... Edith um, my uh, oh, Edith Piaf. Edith Piaf. Yeah. Do you have this? Yeah, where it, and this is seen with like um, where uh, Wade, Wade, like Giovanni Ribisi's character, where he's like, my mother used to um, oh to, come in uh, and talk to me, and I used to pretend to be asleep. And, I don't uh, know why. Stay awake. I don't know why. And it's like cool story, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's interesting because like you do get little moments of characterization that work. You think like Tom Sizemore character getting soil from all of the places that he's been, for example. Or you think about the moment where like during the firefight with Paul Giamatti's character where um, Vin oh, Diesel... Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, where Vin Diesel is like having the peaches where he's picking up the peaches and biting them and throwing them away and he has to drop them in order to get back into the fight that he's in. You get these little beats of humanism which work very well but you also get as you pointed out the stock world war Two. let me show you a picture of my babe now to be fair you boring yeah you could argue that like you could argue that um it's a slight subversion in that reben's the one who survives and he's the one who's like hey i got a set of big tits waiting for me back home yeah that's the story (laughs) 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 
It's like once I saw a set of tits, and it's like Spielberg. Um, she was like, "Remember these tits?" Yeah. Hey, Brooklyn. Hey. Um, oh. oh, it's gone back. To, <laughs> I, I, I also only have one voice. <laughs> impression. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, it just it it has this sort of like yeah, it it doesn't quite work, and it's weird because it feels so unnatural when everything else is so naturalistic. Like again, you have the sights of people vomiting over the side of the. Um, you have people vomiting over the side of the, the carrier as it's going. You have people vomiting inside the carrier as they're getting to the beach. You I have know. this approach of naturalism and limbs blowing off. But then you have, like, Riven's one set away from taking out a picture of the tits and showing them to the other guys in the unit saying, Hey, I'm going to write her... Uh, even the letter. The letter, which is a very strange touch, where, like, Vin Diesel's written this letter, but it's smeared with blood, so they have to rewrite it. Which is a clever touch, because that's like... well, you're... Wade rewrites it. Yeah. And then Wade dies. But somehow, like, the letter gets passed from person to person, and it doesn't look very bloody. Even when, is it Riven with his bloody hands, picks it up off it, Miller? It looks like the letterhead is red. <laughs> yeah. <And> it's <laughs> like just it a thin line of blood. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, as opposed to actually being smeared with bloody paw. Yeah, where it looks brown. Yeah. And I mean, like, and this, the... Is, the, this is the thing where you have... Again, this this push and pull that exists where it's a clever idea. It's like you have the actual reality of the Second World War, which was bloody and messy and disgusting and filled with suffering and violence and death and was more brutal and horrific than memory allows it to be versus the sanitized version, which is the one that's written out on nice paper after the fact and mailed out, which is very similar to how the war has traditionally been portrayed as the good battle, the good versus evil battle. But like Saving Private Ryan doesn't, it can't, Sometimes for me, it feels like it doesn't pick which one of those two lanes it's in. Like it's good when it's. Um, it's good when it's it's gritty to a certain yeah, extent. It's good yeah. when it's and, visceral and, and and where things aren't so kind of like obvious, I guess. Yeah. Like or... like they like the scene where Hanks is kind of like drunk tank shooting, <laughs> <laughs> like you know where where he's been uh, shot and has yeah. kind of like lost a bit of blood and he's like. I can shoot, I can shoot, it's fine. I got a gun here, I'll shoot this tank. Hey, tank, bang. <laughs> um, you know. Uh, he, he's this never like, would happen if I had my coffee this like, morning. Uh, like limply kind of <laughs> shaking his like kind of gun, gun arm. arm. And then it explodes. <laughs> but, yeah, um, but yeah, it's things like that that don't necessarily work. And it's, I wonder, part of me wonders... Does Quentin Tarantino have a particular kind of, you know, gear to grind with this movie for a certain respect? Because watching it again, and again, you talk, like, I remember so much of this, but watching it again, it reminded me of how much of Quentin Tarantino's recent, how many of Quentin Tarantino's recent films seem to riff on Saving Private Ryan. Like, in particular, the Daniel Bruhl story from, um, you know, Inglorious Bastards feels a lot like like how Jackson is presented at certain points in this movie, where he's up in the bell tower and he's a feckin' machine. Now, obviously, he gets blown up first, but he get, as you pointed out, that's the part in the movie that's most viscerally like, war is great fun. Like, it's yeah. really visceral and it's really exciting and it's really tense. And yeah. part of me is wondering if Tarantino, with Daniel Brühl's character, who's basically the Nazi version of that, and whose narrative is co-opted into film, is Tarantino having just a little bit of, like, fun at Spielberg's expense, sort of being that little bit of a provocative little stir that he is. And also even... like those uh, sniper kind of games where you have to adjust. 
for the... Oh, for the wind and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but even things like, if you look at, say, The Hateful Eight, which I loved and I know a lot of people didn't, but even in The Hateful Eight, there's this joke about the Lincoln letter. So the Lincoln letter, which is a hugely important part of this movie, yeah. it's quoted twice over the course yeah. of the film. And it's this very romantic idea of like what warfare is and what service is and how America loves and cares for those who have devoted themselves to service. Um, and whereas like the Hateful Eight also features a letter from Lincoln, except the entire point of the letter from Lincoln in the Hateful Eight is that it's complete nonsense. It doesn't exist. It's just made up to make people feel good about themselves and to provide like stock and a myth for like the modern American identity. And like watching Saving Private Ryan again, because I'd forgotten how important the Lincoln letter was mm. to this movie. Um, part of me is wondering if Tarantino was again being a little bit of sort of like a gentle poking of the old man Spielberg. And that's sort of like... I mean, if I were Spielberg, sorry, if I were Tarantino, Tarantino. I'd want to, you know, make have... one of, of Spielberg because you, you kind of want to um, uh, take down the... The old uh, guys, yeah, the old guys. Yeah. Like you want to be the young kid, the young up-and-comer. to yeah. and, but like, and Spielberg had been doing this for 20 years at this point. Well, I mean, he's even more of an institution now, but back then he was... Yeah. You know, I mean, like, you're talking about Schindler's List, Jurassic Park in the 90s. Like, you're talking about a man who won two Oscars. You're talking about, yeah, a huge cultural influence. It's almost impossible to miss, you know? You enjoyed that um, uh, 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 Terminator 2 Judgment Day shit. Oh, the, the morph, yes. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the morph yeah, yeah. when it went from, like... Um, the any morphing was... Um, all the rage. No, it, 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 they, didn't they kind of create that technology for... Uh, yeah, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Yeah. Um, and it, it, I thought this one was a pretty good it morph as far as good. the good. As somebody, good. as somebody who has watched a lot of 90s television and has had to look at low-budget versions of Morphe, yeah. which gradually consists of, like, Photoshop fade with a little <laughs> bit of blur going on, I, I quite appreciated the, like, gradual, gentle morphing. I like this. the idea of, like, uh, Ryan's entire life being kind of made up of thinking. Of, <laughs> what would uh, Miller do? Would yeah, Miller like respect like, my decision? Oh, and Miller just kind of there all the time saying, really? You're going to wear that shirt? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the ghost of Tom Hanks. There's a comedy I want to see. It's like, it's a sitcom version of this. You don't want to spin off Band of Brothers. What you want to do is you want to spin off um, Ryan and Miller. Uh, it's basically Randall and Hofkirk's deceased sort of thing. It's like... We didn't all die. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that you could wear... From that person yeah <laughs> like yeah. why don't you stand up for yourself yeah. and it's like have you invented that light bulb yet <laughs> <laughs> but again and this is the thing where you have that myth of like the american second world war and the, the sort of like the generation the baby boomers and how much they owe to the greatest generation and stuff like that Let's and talk about it and push westward uh, no 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 but i mean like this idea that like Every breath that you take is a debt that you owe to that older generation, which is uh, kind of... And while true, like, let's be entirely honest, a little bit true. Every every person uh, Miller kills, like, the (laughs) further he gets away from uh, from home. Yeah, he's heading eastward, eastward, and um, eastward and down. Um, See, this is is it, Andrew. This is what you you want, right? Uh, But no, like, I mean, I think that there is something interesting there in this idea of the greatest generation, how that's sort of, like, become like part of an American mythology and stuff like that no am I am I reading too much into it no yeah absolutely it's notable as well that um, Saving Private Ryan sort of became a forerunner we alluded to this with Shakespeare in Love but it became part of an arms race uh, in terms of spending 
in terms of award season and stuff like that. We'll include some stuff in the show notes about this as well. But like apparently uh, the Weinstein Company spent something like $17 million um, to get Shakespeare in Love winning the Oscar for Best Picture. And apparently uh, the issue with Saving Private Ryan was that its Oscar campaign was very conservative and old fashioned. And like you, you have interviews with people from the time where they're like, we feel like if Oscar voters watch the film, they'll come away and they'll know which way to vote. We don't need to buy votes to win, which in hindsight looks kind of this wonderful sort of like almost naivety about the award season process. It's kind of funny watching award season turn into the monster that it's kind of become today, which we talked about on Roma, where Netflix are like, hey, do you want your autograph picture wall framed or gold plated? Do you want your autograph sort of poster for Roma, sort of sign? Where would you want that lunch? Uh, where do you want that steak? Uh, we're buying a villa. Would you like a villa? Um, it's a Roma villa. You know, please consider voting for us. <laughs> have, um, yeah, they, they um, have this uh, uh, Roma plastic surgery. <laughs> yeah, just on our account. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see Saving Private Ryan as a sort of an old out or a holdout in, in sort of that respect. Uh, just in terms of praise as well, actually, we should probably provide a sense of context for this. Um, Janet Maslin, the critic for the New York Times, hailed it as the finest war movie of our, of our times. It won the Golden Globe for Best Director and Best Film. Spielberg won for Directing, as we pointed out. 60 critics named Saving Private Ryan the Best Picture of the Year. Roger Ebert named it the third Best Picture of 1998. Um, Stephen Ambrose, who authored D-Day and Citizen Soldiers, called it the finest Second World War movie ever made. The Secretary of the Army presented Spielberg with the military's highest civilian decoration, the Distinguished Civilian Service Award, and the New York Times even devoted a respected editorial to Spielberg's war. So, I mean, like, this no, is a, this is like a war huge movie. movie. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. We spoke about things like The the Longest Day and uh, Bridge Too Far. They're more, they almost feel like kind of documentaries. Yeah. Like, they, 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 don't, they don't get the, like, they're um, closer to being about war. Because they're very closely kind of based on the books. Yeah. Um, well, this was inspired by Ambrose's work as well, I believe, as an historian. But it's not directly; it's not a direct adaptation. Yeah, it feels much more movie, yeah. uh, much more cinematic. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, like, this is the thing where, like, every kind of very Hollywood sort of storytelling. Yeah. Well, every every week we ask the question, "What is this movie about for you?" Saving Private Ryan seems to be Spielberg asking America, "What was World War Two about for you?" It's an attempt to distill this historical event into a mythic structure to a certain extent. A story of a bunch of Americans in a foreign land risking life and limb and, and dying in large amounts in mm. order to save the lives and the innocence of, of kind of people who need protecting and people who need caring for and the cost that that entails. And again, it is a myth-making. It is a story of... It's the myth-making film of World War II. And so I understand why it is as, as highly ranked as it is. I think it's number 28 uh, on the list as it stands so it's the highest ranked world war ii film it's not the highest ranked spielberg film i think schindler's list is higher uh but it's the highest ranked combat film on there so i think that about wraps it up in terms of our, our coverage and discussion of uh saving private ryan uh, andrew is there anything you'd like to recommend to listeners anything that you'd like to point them towards um that you think they might enjoy um i would um no i i'd say uh check out darren's uh letterbox um isn't that what it's called? Yes. Yes, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks uh, Thanks for listening. Yeah. Um, uh, subscribe if you haven't already. Oh yeah, and then leave, leave a review leave as a well, review. actually. It'd be really nice. Um, um, 
we're, yeah. we're bowled over that anybody listens to this at all. No, it's incredible. Um, um, so, 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 um, uh, thank you guys. It's, it, 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 it's, um, I mean, this isn't, this isn't really hard work, right? <laughs> but, but it, 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 it is a bit of kind of like a taking, commitment. Uh, 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 time out to to, to do, do this. It. Enjoy spending time with with with, with a guy I like. Who's, yeah. who's, who's, who's Darren. Um. Mm-hmm. So if nobody was listening, and if nobody was kind of like leaving reviews, it would probably make it kind of <laughs> feel less worthwhile. Yeah. So thank you. Earn it, Andrew. Earn <laughs> this. Um, and yeah, I, I have a couple of recommendations very, very quickly. I would recommend, um, off the back of this, a number of historical document, uh, historical sort of miniseries. Um, Chernobyl's on at the moment, and I recommend that, but I suspect I'm, we'll probably talk about that within a couple of weeks to come. But um, even if you haven't seen them, Spielberg and Hanks produced two miniseries about the Second World War. Band of Brothers, yeah. uh, which premiered in late August 2001, actually. Um, so it, it overlapped with the 9-11 sort of terrorist attacks. It's very like this. Yes, it's very much an extension because it's the war in Europe. It's D-Day. Yeah. In fact, Easy Company, um, as do, you pointed uh, out, the, the, air, the 101st the Airborne. Is Pacific as well, don't they? They do. The Pacific is one that was produced much later in 2006. Yeah. And it's worth noting, it's been argued again, again, this is in terms of like Saving Private Ryan being a 90s experience, that the Pacific, and even later movies like, for example, Flags of Our Fathers or Letters from Iwo Jima, never managed to capture the same cultural success of Saving Private Ryan or even Band of Brothers. Um, and yeah, maybe that's because they were telling more complex the narrative in the Pacific again. Yeah, <laughs> and then try to make like a movie about it. <laughs> we'll do a hard reboot. Again, is it? Like the problem with the war in the Pacific in World War Two is that they didn't get the directors involved early enough. <laughs> like, well, I th- the problem with the war in the Pacific is that it doesn't have as clean a narrative as the war in in. Um, in Europe, it doesn't have that like Nazis wearing skulls on their head, liberating like, concentration camps. Because like the war in the Pacific ends with nuclear bombs, rather than fight racism <laughs> to a certain extent. Yes, it's let's drop nuclear bombs on civilian populations, which is understandably there even was so if you much kind of anti-Japanese kind sentiment, of, like yeah. internment as well. Like it's telling that the new season of have what you, you call uh, uh, Mandarin oranges Mandarin? Yeah, because of the because color. they used to be Japanese oranges. Yeah. Um, Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, they re- they changed the name of them. Like Freedom Fries. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to note, actually, in terms of that, the second season of The Terror, which I think is launching soon, starring George Takei, um, of which I'm, I'm a huge fan. I don't know how you oh feel my. about George Takei. Oh, yeah. Oh, my. But it's actually set during Japanese internment in the Second World War. Um, the internment of all Japanese citizens by the American government, um, which was an act, a horrific act, uh, by the American government during the Second World War, completely unjustified. Yeah, um, it's one of the kind of dark chapters as well that like Roosevelt has kind of um, uh, against him. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, but that that will be out soon as well. The terror. It's a horror. It's a horror story that will be set in an internment camp, and it's starring George Takei, who actually, as a five year old kid, was in an internment camp. He has memories yeah. of it as well. So that's I'm. Very curious. I'm very excited to see that. But yes, I would recommend Band of Brothers. I'd recommend The Pacific as well. They're both really great miniseries and they work well together. Um, Band of Brothers is very much like this. The Pacific, while not quite Malick-esque, is much more like the Thin Red Line in terms of having a a looser structure in terms of narrative and and form and being less kind of linear and straightforward. Uh, Because again, to a certain extent, that's how the war in the Pacific is narrativized and complicated. So I'd recommend checking this out. The name is Hikaru Sulu. Well, I mean, keep in mind, he didn't have a first name. The first part of 
Was he didn't it have Ikaru? It was Ikaru, but he didn't get a first name until fan fiction. Oh. He was given a first name by fan fiction and that then became part of continuity. It wasn't it mentioned... It's very strange that yeah. he has, like, a seemingly Japanese first name. But what is Sulu? Yeah, there's a Korean. I think it's Korean. Is it? I believe so. Now, don't... Uh, do you want me to check that on the fact machine? <laughs> no, sure? okay. I guess we should wrap up. Okay. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll he, find out Hikaru, Hikaru was given to him by fans. He, Hikaru wasn't mentioned on screen until Star Trek VI. Oh, wow. Sulu didn't have a first name in Star Trek VI. Do you know how long it took... That was his last outing. That, that was his last outing as Sulu, yeah. Do you know... How do I know that his name is Hikaru <laughs> Sulu? Yeah. Um, do you know... Do you know Ahura's first name? Um... I do not. Nyotu. Nyota. Do you know Nyota. when Nyota? Do you know when she got that name? When that name was first you know, uttered on screen? Pavel Chekhov had a name from the from I think the early second season. Yeah. But Ahura didn't get her first name mentioned on screen until Star Trek two thousand and nine. Really? Yep. She was given to, uh, that name by fans. I think by Melinda Snodgrass in Ahura's song, which was written in the late eighties. Hikaru Sulu was given his name uh, in the Entropy Effect. I don't remember who wrote that. I'm sorry. Uh, but but I'd like in the to inter- recommend people check out check Star out Trek Star books. Trek. books. Uh, but yeah, we'll be back next week where the wonderful Grey Stuff will be joining us to discuss Rush uh, to mark the passing of Nikki Lauda, actually. So uh, Ron Howard's Rush from 2013. Uh, we're very much looking forward to that. Um, so if you want to give that a watch and join us next week to talk about that. Yes, join us then. Bye. Bye-bye.